We live in a world where there are life coaches who have crappy lives. There are business coaches who've never built a business. And you can pay someone to pretty much teach you anything, even if they haven't done it before. This is the trouble with this section of the professional services industry today. It's full of fakes, frauds, and phonies. That's why I am thrilled, I'm honored, and it's a pleasure to bring you someone who's the real deal. On the show today, we have Brendan Kumarasamy, and he runs the YouTube channel titled Master Talk. All you need to do is watch Brendan on stage, watch his YouTube videos, listen to him speak on any of the dozens of podcasts he's been on, and you know this guy is the real deal. Today, he's going to take us inside the business strategy behind his business, inside the business secrets of speaking, and he's going to share with us how you can own the room, whether you're on video in front of hundreds of people or on a stage in an arena in front of thousands. Please join me in welcoming Brendan Kumarasamy of Master Talk to the Inside BS Show. Brendan, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here today. It is fantastic to have you. And I meant every word that I said in the intro. You are the real deal. So thanks for joining us. I appreciate that, Dave. That was a hilarious intro. I loved it. All right. So let's talk about that for a minute, right? You're you're in the business of helping speakers. You're a speaker yourself. Give us the worst intro you've ever had. And you don't have to tell us who gave you the intro. Tell us the worst intro, and then let's talk about how you recover from a bad intro as a speaker. Right. So do you mean worst intro when I was on a podcast or a presentation that I've seen? You know, that's that's such a great question. So um, I'm, I'm going to give you, uh, let, let me tell you a little story about a presentation intro, and then we can talk about podcast intros in a minute, because there's, there's something that I, I've been dying to ask you. But well, when I was, I, I speak probably 70 times a year, obviously in a pandemic, I don't, I don't speak that much. But when I was first speaking, I worked for a company called the Gallup Organization, and I was hired to do a Salesforce effectiveness talk for a company that was like Home Depot in the Midwest. And they got all their people together. It was a family-owned business, but they had 65 or 70 stores. They got all their people together in a really ornate old theater, and it was in Kansas, and they, they, uh, we prepared for the talk in advance. I customized it and everything. I show up the day of the talk, and I'm waiting backstage, and literally a great venue, and they were gonna have their sales meeting that would follow my talk, waiting backstage. And the guy who's supposed to introduce me, my contact, the guy who planned the whole event, the HR guy, he, he wasn't there. And I'm thinking to myself, well, all right, I, I don't know. I guess I could just go out and introduce myself. But I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. And the, the guy who's running the show behind the scenes was like, just wait. He'll be here. Just wait. Guy shows up, and he walks right past me backstage and uh, doesn't say a word, walks out. There's a, like a, you know, a, a stand-up comedy microphone on a, on a little uh, stand in the front. He picks the mic up, and he says, folks, folks, settle down, settle down. Now... We have our Salesforce effectiveness presentation, and, and I know all of you have come here today to hear that. Some of you may have heard the news. 
Mr. I'm not going to use his real name, Mr. Klondike, who is the founder of our uh, our business, uh, was shot and killed in his home last night. So unfortunately, we're going to cancel the rest of the program today. Now people are like shuffling in their seats. There's murmurs. It's like you know somebody's wailing in the back, like a woman screamed. And I'm standing backstage, and I'm thinking, well, I guess I'll come back and do the talk another time. And the guy goes, however, since he's come all this way, ladies and gentlemen, Dave Lorenzo. <laughs> so, that was my worst intro ever. <laughs> so that's the worst stage intro. We'll talk about podcasts in a minute. Tell me, you're you're the guru, and I've seen you speak, and you're excellent. Your opening is fantastic. What do you do when somebody does an intro like that? First, how do you prevent that? And then what do you do when somebody gives you like the crappiest intro ever? Man, you're really throwing a hardball at me five minutes into the show. <laughs> so, so the first thing I'll say is I can't compete with that kind of an intro. I've never gotten that that bad of an intro. Owner getting killed the day before. That sounds good. <laughs> Shot and killed <laughs> in his living room. <laughs> I was like, what, what's the next thing you're going to say? That HR rep was the guy who did it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I so, wish that would have been that would have given me an out. <laughs> um, so what um, what happens? Seriously, nobody's going to have. And I when I tell that story to people, they think to themselves immediately, well, I'm never going to get that bad an intro. What do you do? So the guy somebody gets up there and they go, all right, ladies and gentlemen, here he is, Joe Smith. And you just got to walk out there. What do you do when that happens? Because the opening is so important. Absolutely. So, so the way I think about this, Dave, is I have a completely different perspective on this in the sense that a lot of people go, you know, Brennan, how do I get, how do I be more engaging? How do I give this intro if this happens? How do I do this if, if somebody gets shot the day before? But the way I think about it is everything is always your fault. If you make a mistake, if your introduction isn't good, if you don't open with enthusiasm and energy, it's all your fault. So what do I mean by this? What I mean is your introduction needs to already be so perfect, regardless of the scenario that you're in, minus maybe the killing stuff, before you get on stage. That's why I always recommend, before you get there, to practice your intro 50 to 100 times, at least, and we can get into those methods later. But because you do it so many times, when you get up on stage, you always nail it. So what I've seen in my experience is most people who are really bad at introductions generally don't try at all, right? It's not really the person who's introducing them, but when they start the presentation where I see the weakness, the announcers are usually not so bad, but it's when the speaker goes up and goes, yeah, so today we're going to learn how to, yeah, you're just like, why is this guy coughing? Is he, is he like sick? Right? Is he just... The people who are bad at intros are the people who aren't putting enough time into refining it. So that's what I've seen. Does that make, does that help? No, oh, that's great. So what you're saying is you need to go up and you need to have your own, the opening prepared for in advance. It needs to be well rehearsed. You need to know what you're going to do. So what's your, what's your approach to the, to the opening of, of a talk? How do you advise your clients to open a talk? Yeah, absolutely. So. Let's, let's start kind of like with the framework that I think anyone who's listening can apply, and then we can jump into the introduction. So for me, the technique that I always share with people is what I call the puzzle method. So public speaking in many ways is like a jigsaw puzzle, Dave. You know those toys you kind of put together? Sure. I guess now because it's COVID, everyone's doing puzzles. Hmm. But, but if I asked you the question, if you're working on a puzzle yourself, 
which pieces would you start with first and why? So I take the usually the corners, uh, definitely the borders, but I try to find the corners so that I know what the what the framework is going to be like. Absolutely. And that's exactly the answer I was looking for. So now the question to ask ourselves is why don't we do that in public speaking? We have a presentation in the boardroom, in the conference room, in any room. So what do we do? We start at the middle first. We shove a bunch of content. We get to the presentation. We ramble through the entire thing. And the last slide, which is our conclusion, sounds something like this. Uh, yeah, so thanks. That's probably 95% of every presentation I've seen in my life. But there's an easy way to fix this. Treat your public speaking. Treat your presentations like a jigsaw puzzle. Start with the edges first. Practice your introduction 50 times. Not three times, not five times. Do it 50 times. It's actually not that hard. It'll take you an hour because, you know, it's a minute each. Same thing with the conclusion. What's a great movie with a terrible ending? Last time I checked, terrible movie. 50 times the conclusion. In only two hours of practice, you look at yourself and go, wow. You know, I used to think I wasn't that great of a speaker, but since Brennan forced me to do the introduction so many times, it's actually not that bad. And then with that newfound confidence, then you dive into the middle. But much like a jigsaw puzzle, who does 2,000-piece puzzles on their own? Nobody I know. Mm. Get a team together. Get a group of people. You don't necessarily need a coach. You just need a group of people who are excited about public speaking who want to see you win. I never practice my keynotes alone, even to this day. So that's what I recommend. And that's the general framework. So the second part of that is what you were alluding to. How do you intro? And that answer is going to depend on a lot of things, namely two, what idea you want to share with the world and how comfortable you are introing in different ways. So I have a couple of videos on YouTube that share kind of different techniques, but I would say the idea that you always want to ask yourself that, that works for any speaker of any kind is what is your key idea? If you were to summarize your entire spiel in one sentence, what's the sentence? So for me, I can ramble about public speaking for hours, probably days on end. But if there's one sentence you need to take away from my, from me, it's, it's that I think anyone can do it. And then the next part of that is what is the best way of defending that idea in a way that most people in the audience go, he's right about his key idea. And I use a personal story where I talk about my own struggles as a communicator. Okay, so that's great. I that, and I think your I think your uh, analogy and your framework is perfect. Let's talk a little bit about emotion versus fact based uh, presentations, right? And I think this is one of the really big takeaways that uh, that people need to need to come away from, come away with as we speak today. How much of your presentation is about making an emotional connection and just grabbing them? And how much is laying out the facts so that it's, it, you know, you, you mentioned defending something. It's, impe it's unimpeachable. How much is fact? How much is emotion? What's the mix? Do you believe there's a mix? Talk about that. Oh, that's, that's fascinating. So definitely, there's definitely a mix. And it's going to depend based on the type of speaker you are. The approach I like to go with, because I... You, just the way that I do things is, is 90-10. So I'm a lot more focused on the emotion than the actual content of the delivery. And I'm happy to explain why. So your question goes back to this idea of what's more important, how you deliver the content, whether it's through emotion or different techniques, 
or whether it's the actual substance of your content. And let's play an analogy to kind of figure this out. So I want everyone who's listening right now to imagine themselves back in high school, right? You know, your high school teachers, you're learning a bunch of subjects, but the question I want you to think about is how much do you actually remember from high school? And the answer is probably very little. But how does that make sense? Aren't the teachers very well educated? Don't they have master degrees in their subjects? Shouldn't they know exactly what they're talking about? They do. So why don't we remember anything? The content's excellent. Now I want you to think about the opposite scenario. Think about the best speakers that you've ever heard in your life, whether it was on YouTube, whether it was in person. What quality did those people have and how much did you remember from their speech? So if I use Tony Robbins as a good example here, whenever I ask people who've seen Tony what they've learned from him, they always say something very general, despite the fact that Tony literally talks for like 13 hours straight. (laughs) They would say something like, oh, you know, Dave, it's, it's the way that he speaks. You know, I need to live a life with purpose. I need to remove all of my limiting beliefs. So essentially what I'm getting at, Dave, is even the best speakers in the world, the people who are sitting in that audience tend to only remember one or two key ideas that they end up taking action on. Or if I take Gary Vee as a second example, I need to get on TikTok. I need to get on LinkedIn. I need to get on this, but that's it. It's or I need to follow my dreams. But it, but there's very few people in the audience, maybe somebody like you or me, who's actually going to like take notes on the entire speech and going to take action on like seven or eight things. Most people don't do that. Oh, go ahead. No, no, no. I, I think I think you're right. Go ahead. F- finish your thought. There. Oh, no, no worries. Sorry, I like to ramble on a lot. No, no. I, I think you're spot on. Oh, <laughs> uh, thanks, thanks. But that's that's the point. So what what cl- cl- conclusion does this lead us to? leads us to the following. Provided your key idea is solid, provided your key idea is well thought of, you need to spend the other 99% figuring out how to deliver it. That's what the best communicators on the planet do. Their secret isn't that they're smarter than all of us. The secret, and you know this since you're a professional speaker yourself, is they give the same talk. Tony Robbins has been doing the same seminar for 40 years. The same thing. Three-day seminar, you walk out fire at some point, he yells at you for 13 hours, but because he does the same thing, he never has to think about his content. He's only focused on how to deliver that content in a way that shocks you into your potential, right? That's how he thinks about it. And that's why I want all of you to start thinking about it. Maybe you don't want to be a professional speaker, which is totally fine, but the way you need to think about it is saying, okay, I have this cool idea, whether it's a cupcake recipe, or a tough conversation I, I want to have with my family, or just a talk that I want to give. Once you figure out the content, you've delivered it 10, 15 times, and you know your content inside out, you need to spend the rest of your time figuring out how to deliver it in a way that people go, oh my God. Yeah, I, yeah, I think you're spot on. And the way that the way that I like to think about it myself is the experience that the person in the room is going to have. I mean, you know, in the room is is relative now these days. We're in a room where we're together on video. The experience the person's going to have, and then the outcome that they their expectations and the outcome I'm looking to achieve, which should be in alignment with their expectations. So the minute you start thinking about an experience someone's going to have, you're talking about emotion. 
if, you know, if Disney built their theme parks based just on facts, nobody would go, right? But they build their theme parks on the feeling they want people to have. What's Disney's motto? It's the happiest place on earth. And the fo- their focus is making that experience an experience where you come away and you go, that was so great, I want to come back again. Well, when people watch Master Talk, when they go to YouTube and check out your channel, they look at that and it's it's like I, the analogy I use is eating M&Ms. You can't just watch one video because you want more of what you're getting because it, it helps you. You feel like you're going to achieve your goals and you're doing that in your, you know, the, the insight that you've just given people, it takes years to figure out if, if you don't have that shortcut. And we talk about this all the time here on Inside BS. I talk about it with my clients. And that's the fact that learning from others is the greatest shortcut there is. So when, you know, when people hear you talk about, uh, talk about speaking in this way, they need to take it to heart and they need to go back and work on that specific part of their presentation. And, you know, we're going to talk about now how to do that. I, I didn't learn that. I, I had been speaking for years. I, you know, I didn't have any formal system. I didn't learn it until I, I threw myself into trying to do stand-up comedy because I wanted to do something that was truly terrifying. And one of the first things they teach you is what you open with and what you close with are the two most important things. So what the first thing you do in comedy is just write, write a really good joke. And then you, you get two minutes, go up and tell that joke. If nobody laughs, you either tweak the joke or you throw it away. But your deal is you're coming up with your opening joke. And then the second thing you do, you come up with your closing joke. So you go up and you tell two jokes and you leave. And you do that over and over again for months and months and months until people laugh at those two jokes. And then you build an act around that. And if you watch somebody like Jerry Seinfeld, a lot of his material... I, we saw him in person two years ago, a year and a half ago. A lot of his material is stuff he's been doing for years. People go and they see it over and over again and they laugh at the same parts. Some of them don't even realize it. All right, so how do we, how do we practice? We're in, we're in an age now where we're not get, you and I aren't getting up on a stage in front of anybody anytime soon, at least for the next three or four months. This, uh, this interview is coming out January 11th, right? People will listen to it forever, but... You know, as we look at as we look at the landscape, we're not getting getting up on a stage probably at least for six months. So how do we practice? This is the perfect time to hone a really good talk. So, Brendan, what do I do to practice? Absolutely. So there's a couple of things that you can do, Dave. I would say the first thing is to figure out what presentation can you repeat many times that will make you a better speaker and improve your life. So for you, that's very easy. You're already a professional speaker. And I'd even recommend on top of that to make a presentation out of your own podcast show if you haven't already, because you can use that as promotional material. But what's great about that type of presentation is you could do it forever. You can just keep going to a local community, university, present that thing, and, and you can grow the podcast that way. But for those of you who are listening who aren't a YouTuber or don't have a podcast, I'm like, well, what can I repeat? I work at a bank. And then I always change presentations. What I always think about is what is one thing or one topic that you feel you could teach other people that you're good at? And you don't need to get paid to do it just for practice. So the classic example I give is Julia is a bank executive. She thinks that she can't present the same thing over and over again because her projects are always different. But she's really good at marketing. 
So my advice is make a presentation on marketing 101 and present it to a kid's leadership program in your community for free, right? Because what's fascinating about this is that the presentation will always stay the same, but the kids will always change. So if you just find that type of community, I do a lot of pro bono in my city too. You can just keep practicing your presentation. That's one thing I would do. And obviously today that the same analogy applies, but in this case, it would be on a Zoom call mm-hmm. or, or through different mediums like that. But if you still don't have access to that kind of stuff, just to, to go back to bare bones, there's one exercise that I'm happy to demonstrate and I recommend a lot to my clients, which is called the random word exercise. So essentially what you do is you pick five random objects in your house and you make one minute presentation out of them. And what this does, it builds your resilience. Because if you talk about cameras for a minute, you have no expertise in that subject. When you go back to the presentations you actually know something about, those presentations suddenly become a joke. That's great. So there's a there's a movie with Steve Martin and the name of the movie escapes me now. He's a he's a preacher, but he's like a charlatan preacher, does tent revivals. And part of what he does every night is the crew bets money on specific words that he has to work into his sermon. And it is it is I I get such a huge kick out of that because watching that in a movie it's really hard. They give him hard word like aluminum siding. You know, he has to work the word aluminum siding into a into a sermon. I mean, that exercise is fantastic for keeping you sharp on your feet. So let's talk about that. How much of the presentation should be completely rehearsed and how much, how do you keep it from becoming, you know, from looking like, you know, you see some of these people like reading a teleprompter for the first time, they look like they're, it's a hostage video, right? So how do you keep your presentation (laughs) from becoming really stiff if you rehearse it a lot? Yeah, I love how your stand-up comedian background is really helping you in business. I actually wanted to be one as well, and I can see the benefits clearly. Well, I, I mean, listen, that. I it's it's just something I did to to make myself uncomfortable and and make myself feel better about giving a regular speech because it's absolutely terrifying. I wouldn't classify myself as a as a comedian. I told one or two jokes once, um, but how do you keep your presentation from being like so stiff because you rehearsed it so much? Right. So, so the way that I think about this, Dave, is this is actually an illusion. Uh, I think most people who actually practice oh, their presentation a lot sound a lot better than people who don't, even if the general idea is, oh, no, won't you be stiff? But the exception to that rule that you mentioned is someone uses a teleprompter. You're right in the sense of somebody does that. And that's why I hate that kind of approach is it pulls out the emotion of your speech. It's like if you're in this conversation right now and every time you ask me a question, I'd say, hey, wait a second, Dave, let me pull up my cue card for that question. And I would just read the cue card. It was just so so weird. Like, what are you doing, Brendan? Thought we were having a coffee, not a a jail conversation or something. But but that's the thing. That's what I want to drive. Okay. So as you get better at communication. So let me kind of bring you through kind of the roadmap to make this easy for people. So you figure out what your topic is, which is the hardest part, by the way, not actually presenting it. Figure out the topic is the hardest part. Then you make a presentation on the topic in that same category. Then you start to present it. So you're Julia, the bank executive. You talk about marketing. You do it a couple of times. You're all right. You're good. But you're realizing very quickly that the kids like some of the parts and they don't understand many of them. 
So when you review your deck, you start to realize over time when you've presented the fifth time, the seventh time, the ninth time, that you're using too much bank lingo and your marketing presentations. And the kid's seven years old. What are they going to understand from those that bank lingo? So you look at yourself and you go, okay, I need to change this slide. You start making changes. Then you're at the 15th time you've presented, the 20th time. And now the kids start to understand, let's say, 80% of it. And they go, oh, that makes sense to me. So now at this point, you have to look at your presentation and go, how can I simplify this in a way where 100% of the kids go, this is better than YouTube or watching TV at my home? That's when you start to get into the fun stuff. But here's the punchline and why people are stiff, Dave, is the logic stops at some point in the process. They go, let's say a try 50. And I know I'm using a lot of numbers, but hopefully people are keeping track here. But the idea is like you get at some point in your presentation, you go, oh, well, I guess it's good enough for most people. I'm going to stop there. That's why it stays stiff, because nobody is trying to up the bar more and more. In the same way, by the way, a lot of other people on YouTube in my niche just stop it there. They make a lot of money coaching clients, so they don't put a lot of effort to their YouTube channel. Whereas I kind of said, wait a second, what about the people who can't afford me? I should probably put more time into this shit, right? And that's how I added more value for people in that context. Same analogy applies in public speaking. Most people think the bar is here when the bar is actually here. But the next step of that is after the 20th time, somebody like you who wants to go pro, you're like, no, no, no. I need to dissect every part of my presentation to make sure I'm interesting every single time. So then you start to have, and this is the difference that I recommend people, I'll kind of put a nail on that, is have dinner with your audience members and ask them questions. If you were to explain your idea back to me, what would you say? How would you explain it? What are some ideas that you have and how I can explain my ideas better? What is one part of my presentation that you would remove? What makes the best speakers in the world world-class and what keeps them world-class is not the presentation, but the reflection after the presentation. So that's what I encourage more people to do because the people who are honest with you will break that stiffy part of a presentation that you alluded to. They'll say, well, actually, Brendan, uh, the first three minutes of your presentation really stiff. You're like, oh, why was it stiff? And then you change that mm. and you won't have those issues over time. Yeah, that's great. You know, I love I love your analogy of having dinner with your audience. One of the one of the things that I realized, I guess, early on, and and I guess maybe I need we need to preface this by saying that my my intention for myself when I speak, and, and by the way, I think I'm the third person who needs to be pleased with, with the presentation. First person who needs to be pleased is the person who hired me. So the event coordinator or the, planner, the, whoever, yeah. whoever the planner is, the, the client, the person who gave me the check if I'm getting paid or the person who invited me if I'm not getting paid, that's the person I'm there to make sure is, is thrilled. Second person is the audience member. Third person is me. I'm the third person who needs to be happy with my presentation. But the way that I look at this is when I'm thinking about my role, I think about what do I what do I want to get out of this? So if somebody paid me to speak, I what I want is I want to make sure that I deliver the value above and beyond what they paid me to do. But, you know, when I said I speak on average 70 times a year, I'll be candid and tell you that at least half of those are either just cover my expenses or in some cases speaking for free because I'm a lead generation speaker. I do this as a way to generate leads for my business. 
And for me, if I'm in front of the right audience, it's, you know, you don't have to pay me X thousands of dollars to be there because I know I'm going to extract at least that from the audience over the long term. So I know that my performance has to be so good, these people want to have dinner with me afterwards. A lot of people who do this, okay, uh, and I'm talking about now professional speaking, are under the illusion, and this is going to be controversial, they're, gonna, they're under the illusion that they're going to make a living by speaking, you know, 50 or 100 times a year. Well, the pandemic just smacked them in the mouth. So you need to come up with a way to deliver so much value that people want to come back over and over again. What are your thoughts on that? How do you, do, does that go into, do you do you go into the speech planning it that way? Or is that something that you just slap on at the end? How does, how does that work for you? Yeah, for sure. My approach always in a presentation, much like yourself, is to blow people's minds, right? Because I, I obviously, I should, you know, as the, as the master talk, I have, I have a really high excellence for, for my presentations. But I think to bring this back down to chapter one, so, so we don't scare off the people who are listening, that are still listening, <laughs> is this idea that what I meant by dinners with your audience is it's actually not an analogy. I'm very serious about that. Like, even if you're, even if there's three people watching you, I think there's this beauty in connecting with people over food and getting these insights from them that you normally wouldn't get. Of course, you know, that could be coffees or lunches, but I'm big on that. Now, I'll give you an example how that's benefited me. So in my industry, what I've realized is I had dinners and conversations with a demographic that nobody talked to because they're not profitable for someone's bottom line in my sector, which is 12-year-old girls, 15-year-old boys, you know, at like pro bono workshops I was giving. And I realized through conversations with them that nobody was sharing public speaking information in a way that's entertaining and fun. Those were the two words that were missing in our sector, more specifically on the people who are coaching public speaking. And it's those conversations that led to master talk, not a spreadsheet, not a Google search, but by talking to a seven-year-old and the seven-year-old going, I'm really scared of public speaking. She's like, like freaking out. And then I go, okay, how do I fine tune? my presentation in a way that gets her excited about communication. If I achieve that, I think I'm going to go really far with what I have within my ideas. But that's the point I want to drive for people. The more conversations you have, even if you're an introvert, you don't even need to talk to them. You just ask them the right questions. One, it'll help you figure out how to refine your ideas. And B, which is more important, you'll figure out why your ideas matter in the first place. Everyone thinks their ideas are stupid at the beginning. No exception. I started Master Talk at such a young age in my mother's basement with a phone and no budget. Who in the world is going to watch public speaking YouTube videos? Until I met the people who did. And they said, hey, wait a second. You got to watch this because X, Y, Z, blah, blah, blah. Same thing with you. Whether you got a cupcake recipe or a gardening tool, you need to ask your audience why they listen to you. And when they pour their hearts into you, it gives you the motivation to knock out your presentations every single time. But if you don't have that intimate conversation with the people you're trying to serve, you won't be incentivized emotionally to deliver. Versus me, you know, a lot of people are probably looking at me and saying, Oh, you know, Brandon, he's such a good speaker on the podcast. He's talking so eloquently. But the reason I'm doing it 
is because I've had so many conversations with the people that listen to me on shows that I know the reaction, the transformation that they can have if I just show up with a bit more energy, even if I'm alone in my basement right now. And that's the point I want to drive for people. Talk to your audience more, obsess over them, understand their wants, their dreams, their aspirations at a level that they don't even understand it themselves. And I can pretty much guarantee you'll become world-class at this skill one day. All right. So tell us about, uh, tell us about your, your clients. You work with a lot of big companies and you help executives speak you know, in a way that can convey uh, their meaning and hopefully that resonates with their audience, whether it's internal or external. Who else do you work with? Give us the, give us the spectrum of people who work with you to hone their skills. Yeah, of course. I, I think the, the question I usually pull out of that is, at what point does it make sense to hire a speech coach? Because I can probably tell, uh, I'm not really a hard seller. I'm more just like uh, just a dude who adds value. So, so the point that I drive is chapter one for most, Dave, is to get over the fear of communication. And what I recommend to do that is to join a Toastmasters club. I think Toastmasters is a great organization. It's not very expensive. It's like 80 bucks a year. And it's a great way for you to start the journey. Then over time, what will happen is you'll start to get more comfortable with communication. And then the next part of that, in my opinion, is to start asking yourself deep philosophical questions about why you want to master communication. And I'll get you started. How would the world change if you were an exceptional communicator? If you are better at communication, how would your life be better, not just your presentations? Then you start to ponder that. And for some people who move on to step three, those reasons are so big that they need to hire a coach to shorten the time to get there. I honestly think most people watch the YouTube channel can get the results that they're looking for really quickly. That's how I've built the channel. But the people who go for coaching are the people who want to do that in a couple of weeks. So let's say they're a professional keynoter and they charge pretty good money for their speeches or they're CEOs of companies or they're high-level executives of companies. Those are the people who generally have the budget and don't want to spend months watching videos who generally go for coaching. So that's what I would say based on my experience Dave, is most, most people who end up doing coaching with me are generally executives of companies, CEOs of organizations, and people who want to get into professional speaking. It's generally one of these three categories. All right. That's, I, I love that. That's great. You know, and it brings me back to uh, an experience that I had that most people never want to have in their, in their life, and that's I, um, I was finishing up my, uh, my graduate studies work at Columbia University in New York, and the business school had an opening for a speaker. And they said, hey, you know, does anybody know someone who could uh, speak to the business school? It's, and it's a, a prestigious thing. They film you. You're in, you know, a hundred-year-old auditorium with a bunch of people who are really attentive. So I called up. I was, I was working for a consulting company at the time. I called up my CEO and I said, listen, you're in D.C. You can get on the shuttle and come up here. They need somebody this Friday for their speaker series, the guy who's the speaker, you know, he's sick or whatever. He can't make it. It'll be a great recruiting tool for us. You go and speak, and then I'll work the crowd afterwards, get all their contact information. And when they graduate, you know, we can make offers to some of them. And he thought it was the greatest idea. Now, I had seen my CEO speak a few times, and I knew that he was probably going to need a little help. So I gave him a, a sheet of talking points, okay? 
And I said, all you got to do is cover these topics and they'll be eating out of the palm of your hand. Brendan, I don't know what happened to him. Maybe he took his blood pressure medication too early. Uh, Maybe he just was having a bad day. It was awful. It was, uh, he, you know, if, if he was a comedian, he would have bombed so badly that they would have had to come out and get him. I mean, he, he didn't cover the talking points. His energy level was low. The, even the, the, he didn't even live up to the introduction they gave when they, uh, when they brought him out. And this is the reason why I think people need to have the experience of getting really good critique. And I'll tell you, I'll, I'll give you the, the money shot from all of this. Nobody in my company had the guts to come up to this guy and say, listen, you're killing people when you go up there and speak. You need to do these five things. You know, I thought, hey, listen, I'm going to give the boss some talking points. It'll help him out. He'll feel better and he'll muddle through it and and it'll be good exposure for the company. Well, this guy needed a coach because he needed somebody external to provide that guidance and support. I mean, you cannot underestimate that because... People in your little bubble are not going to give you the raw truth. What's some feedback that you've had to give to people that's difficult, and how do you deliver it in a way that doesn't crush their ego? Yeah, that that's a fascinating point, especially on the CEO. I get that a lot, actually, in the sense of, you know, you, you have an executive at a company who thinks that they speak really well, but nobody around tells them because of how the hierarchy of the company works. So somebody external needs to come out and say, actually, uh, this is not so great. So, so the way that I always approach feedback is it really depends on who that person is. So every single individual has their own personality. It's obviously there's certain personalities I prefer to work with that I usually prioritize for my time. But I think the general idea is everyone takes feedback differently and you need to give feedback in the way that they want it. In the same way, by the way, that in public speaking, you're, as you mentioned very well, like the analogy, your audience comes first, not you. So some people like the compl- compliment sandwich, which is, hey, Dave, I really like this, this, this. You're such an incredible speaker, but you actually suck at this. And But you're also amazing. So it's, it's compliment. You know, you say something great and then you say something bad. You say something great. Another approach that I've seen that works is people are a lot more direct. You seem to be one of those types of people who's just like, just tell me the truth. Like, uh, just just get to the point. I can tell from your introduction that you, you're, you're generally, you're probably in that bucket. A little bit. So let's say I was coaching you. I would just get straight to the punchline. I, I wouldn't waste my time complimenting you. I would just go, you suck at this, 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 this. And this is how you fix this. this is, I wouldn't just yell at you. I'd be like, this is how you do it. And then the third thing is full compliments, which is generally for kids. So I have a kid's coaching program. I mostly do that just to understand their psychology so I can make better videos for the general public. So that that type of learning environment is very different. I, I make them give feedback to each other and I compliment them the entire way. So it's more encouragement than anything else. So, so it really depends on the type of person that they are. So I'm always adapting the feedback to them. And as long as I see progression, I'm okay with it. But if I had to be honest, most of my clients probably lie in category two, just because that's my nature, which is like, I just like getting to the point because I want to see results fast if you're putting, because obviously speech coaching, and I'm not going to lie, it's a big investment. So, and, and I wanted to pay dividends for people who invested to me. So, so that's what I've been seeing. But I would say general uh, advice for people who give feedback, understand which category each of your team members are in, like really figure it out and give feedback based on that individual person or else you're going to burn a lot of bridges really quickly. All right. So we talked a little bit about uh, fear of speaking 
And my experience is that there are, there are two types of apprehension that people, that people experience, okay? Fear, just straight up fear of being in front of a group of people having all these eyeballs on you. Maybe you feel like you're going to make a mistake or, you know, you just, you're, you're concerned that you're going to make a fool out of yourself. That fear is one thing. And, you know, if, you're, if you do this a lot, you, exposure can help you overcome that. And you can give us your solution, your, your, your thoughts on fear. But there's something else that creeps in with even experienced speakers, and that's intimidation, right? So I, I'm hired to do a, a keynote address um, before dinner for uh, an association of attorneys. And I'm in the green room waiting to go on, and into the green room walks Eric Holder, the Attorney General of the United States. And he comes up Whoa. to me and he goes, hi, I'm Eric Holder. And I said, I know. <laughs> and I said, I'm Dave Lorenzo. And he said, what are you here to talk about? And I said, I'm here to talk about diversity and marketing and how you can leverage diversity to grow your business. <laughs> he said, really? <laughs> I can't wait to hear you give that talk. <laughs> now, I've been doing this a long time. But when the Attorney General of the United States, who also just happens to be African-American and, and a big advocate for diversity in the practice of law, <laughs> comes up to you and says, I can't wait to hear your talk on diversity, that's intimidating. So, oh, Brendan, what do we do? The first part, fear, how to overcome it. The second part, even pros get intimidated. How do we overcome intimidation? Yeah, congratulations on all the success, by the way, Dave. Good stuff, man. But I would say, uh, uh, okay, so let's break this down. So fear of public speaking. So uh, as you can imagine, I get this question a lot. And my advice is always simple. The fear will always be there. Okay, And Dave just demonstrated a great example of this where even if you're super polished, you've done the presentation 150 times, you can literally do it with your eyes closed. The Attorney General of the United States walks in and kind of, uh, let's just say, uh, makes you feel a bit more scared again, like a, like a girl, a little girl at, like, uh, in high school or something. I don't know. But the point is, is it doesn't matter how good you are as a speaker, you're always going to be scared. But the difference is that the message that you have to share with the world is always more important than the fear. That's the difference. What average speakers do is they let the fear consume the entire presentation. What the pros do is they go, yeah, I'm scared for sure. But the message is so important that I don't care if I'm scared. I'm going to figure it out. And that's why going back to presenting the same thing over and over again builds up your confidence very quickly because you see that result, that transformation a lot faster. Here's a good analogy I like to use. Let's imagine we're in a boxing match. In one side of the ring, you have your fear. And the other side of the ring is your message. The fear will always be in that ring. But as long as your message gets the knockout punch, you'll always be successful. And I'll give you another example to kind of put a nod on this. Brene Brown, who's one of the best speakers on the planet, probably, and is an expert in vulnerability. You know, her TED Talk has tens of millions of views. She has multiple ones. But even her first TED Talk, she has said publicly, this is not like a secret or anything. She said during the talk that she doesn't like public speaking. So the question you need to ask ourselves, Dave, is not why is she scared of public speaking, but rather why is she presenting anyways despite the fear? And when you really dig into that, you realize the following. Brene realized 
that her information cannot just live in books and research papers. Because the single mother with seven kids, well, they don't have time to read her book. They don't have time to read every research annotation in her work. So Brene had to make a choice. And that choice was, do I spend 30 minutes of my life synthesizing my life's work in a way that maybe that person would watch it for free on TED or on YouTube and change her life? Or do I just neglect her? So in the same way that she made her choice and I made mine, because trust me, starting master talk when you don't even have a bachelor's in communication was is really frightening, especially when you're coaching people double your age. But I did it anyways, because the 16-year-old girl who can't afford me, who can't afford a speech coach and still needs access to those tools, still needs access to me and the information anyways. So I needed to figure it out. Brene made her choice. I made mine. And now you need to make yours. All right. Let's talk a little bit about uh, crowd work. Let's talk about Q&A. Let's talk about that. And that's really kind of walking into the lion's den with the meat suit on. Right. So you're uh, and that's what that's what really intimidates people. Oh, I'm going to get a question. And I don't know the answer or somebody's going to say something and make me look foolish. How, what's your opinion on crowd work? Do you take questions? When do you take questions? How do you take questions? Yeah. So once again, depends on the person. Uh, there's two approaches that you could take, but I have a super easy way that you can knock out any pre any question you get. So the first part is if, if you're comfortable with chaos, somebody like me. I love chaos. So I, I'm the type of speaker, unless it's like a very official keynote where I have to talk for 47 minutes. If it's a workshop setting, anyone can interrupt me at any point with questions. But I understand most people are not comfortable with that approach. So one easy way you can you can do this, because remember, you own the stage, not your audience. You're, you're, there, you're there to help your audience, but you're the, the, the orchestrator of this entire thing. You're the conductor. So one thing you can easily say is, Oh, let's leave questions until the end. Feel free to write them down on a piece of paper and we can go through them at the end of the day or something. That's an easy way to kind of mitigate that risk. The other, the other way of doing this is what I call bulletproofing your presentation. So going back to your point, Dave, a lot of people come up and they go, oh man, I'm really scared of the questions I'm going to get. So how do we fix that? We fix that by doing the harder thing. So whenever a client comes up to me, and goes, oh, you know, Brent, I got the boardroom of executives on Tuesday. I don't know what to do. I go, perfect. Let's arrange a call tomorrow where I'll bring 10 of the toughest people in my network and we'll rip you apart. That's literally what I do. So we rip them apart. We question all of their slides. I literally start yelling at them in the presentation until they start sweating. And then at the end, when we've completely dismantled all their presentations and everything, when they get into Tuesday's meeting, they go, well, that was a pretty easy meeting. Yeah. Uh, Brendan wasn't in that room. So, so life is very easy. So that's what I recommend. So bringing this once again, back to chapter one, all you have to do is get a group of friends together and bulletproof the presentation, brainstorm questions that somebody could ask you. And then over time, there won't be any holes anymore. So same thing with me. You know, when I started podcasting as a guest, I sucked, right? You know, that was the first couple of episodes, you know, back to your point, you know, somebody like Dave would ask me, Hey, Brendan, well, how do you get rid of the fear of public spirit? Where does it come from? I go, uh, uh, I don't really know. I'm sitting on a mattress, so I guess I, I'm not really sure. But then over time, when you get when you get asked the same question 200 times, eventually you're able to give a good answer to it. So it's a process. So don't worry about it. 
All right, one last question on style and presentation structure, and then I want to talk uh, about your business, and I want you to share with us how uh, how you got started with with YouTube and and you know how you use it as a tool. Last question I have for you on structure. How do you feel about PowerPoint? Are you a proponent of PowerPoint or do you think it makes people stupid? Is it a crutch? What's your opinion on PowerPoint? Right. So the way that I think about as you probably tell, right, for, post, for people who are listening, is this idea that notice how when I give answers, I don't have any fast rules. It's never you need to use PowerPoint or you don't need to use PowerPoint. I always like to go in the middle because every speaker is different. I'll give you the best example in the context of PowerPoint. Let's say you compare two people in the same space. Gary Vaynerchuk with Seth Godin. Gary hates slides. He never uses them. Right? It's not his style. Whereas Seth Godin uses slides almost all the time. Whether he's presenting Lynchpin or Purple Cow, he's got slides. Hundreds of them, actually, to really take this to the extreme. They're all images, but he likes slides. My personal opinion is you want to try both strategies to see what works. So what I recommend at the beginning, going back to the point why you want to master one presentation, is I would make one with slides. Like one, you know, where you're comfortable with, what makes it easy for you. And then eventually your goal should be where you're in a situation where you can still deliver the same presentation without the slides. So what I did, like I've probably presented my keynote now 300, 400 times now. So I would say the first 25, 30 times I needed my slides. You know, I wasn't sure what the content was. There's a lot of tips, a lot of stories, wasn't really sure. But after the 50th time, I didn't need my slides anymore. So then I, I like bringing them just so people can follow along the tips because my keynotes are a bit more technical than most because I go through actual tangible stuff. And if people take away, that's great. So I like keeping the slides. But if I'm in, a, in, a, in an event and somebody goes, oh, by the way, Brandon, you know, slides aren't working. I go, no worries. Just give me the mic. I'll just go up there because I've prepared for that scenario. So that's what I recommend. Try out the PowerPoints and try the same presentation without the PowerPoint. And then you can assess what works for you. But for me personally, I like them, but it's not for everyone for sure. Great. Good answer. Thank you. Let's talk about your business model now. I have uh, seen you on, and I say seen you because we were, uh, my, my kids like to do research with me on, on the people who we're going to have on the, on the oh, podcast. Cool. So last night we were, we were watching you on dozens and dozens of oh, podcasts and we, we watched, you know, different, different snippets, um, of you on different shows. You're doing a lot of podcasts. Tell us about this strategy because a lot of people, this is like the best kept secret. Uh, doing doing podcasts, how has it helped you in your business? Right. And I'll be perfectly honest here because I appreciate the question. I don't actually do it to build the business. I'll explain why. When I started Master Talk, I had zero intention of making money from it. All I wanted to do, and you can tell from the first year of videos, I was literally in my mother's basement on a couch just pulling out a phone. My goal, if you asked me three years ago, was to be a senior executive at a company like IBM or McKinsey make half a million dollars and then die. I don't really aspire for much else. And that's what the safe thing to do is. But over time, I started getting traction at the channel. And I realized just because, you know, what I'm good at just happens to be a highly monetizable and profitable skill set that I could build a business out of it later. The reason I started jumping on podcasts, those was two reasons. One was to practice for the day when I was going to be on the big shows in five or seven years. So if I get the practice in today, especially with COVID, since I can't fly out anymore, it's going to be great for me. So when I'm at my 700th episode and I'm on a huge podcast, 
then at that point, I'll, I'll know exactly how to deliver at a level that's world-class and I'll, I'll take advantage of the opportunity well. That's one. The second part of it was the the long tail that I have for my channel. Like for me, I, I see it a lot more than just a business because I'm doing really well financially. It's not really about making more money now at this point. It's more of a movement. Like I want to create a world that Dale Carnegie couldn't when he, when he was alive. He, and he's the author of How to Win Friends and Influence People for those who don't know. But the the sad part of the narrative for Dave, uh, for Dale, this and I'm, I'm uh, confusing the Dales and the Daves, is that Dale didn't have the mediums of technology that we do today. The best way to learn public speaking at scale, is, it, at scale is through video, if you don't have access to that person or through a podcast. So I get this opportunity to finish what Dale Carnegie started. And I plan on doing that. So that's why I, I do shows, not really for, uh, for exposure these days. It's mostly just to understand why that person wants to have me on. And I get a lot of video ideas to that experience. And of course, it's led to business, but those are the two uh, big ones. Great. Tell me about growing the growing the YouTube channel because your uh, your channel is impressive. The name of the channel is Master Talk. Just put Master Talk in uh, in YouTube and and Brendan will come up. Tell me about growing the channel because you have uh, you've got some videos that have a phenomenal amount of views. Even your even your videos that are lagging still have a great number of views. You've got a really good number of subscribers as we're recording this. You've got five thousand plus subscribers. I've no doubt that you'll crush ten thousand sometime this this coming year. How do you, how are you growing the channel? How did you when you're in your mother's basement on your phone? How did you start getting people to watch the channel and really leave you feedback and start recommending it to others? Here, here's the advice that nobody gives that I think is the most important, Dave. If you want a thousand followers, be ready to have a thousand different conversations. You know, most people look at their follower account. They go, oh, yeah, if I have like 5,000 people following me, I'm going to make it. Well, if nobody's actually paying attention to what you're saying, it doesn't matter if you have 500,000 followers, you'll still get nothing. You won't be able to build a business. People won't trust. You won't have any influence. That's why I'm a big advocate of this idea that you always want to have conversations with the people that listen to you. Because those are the people that motivate you to even keep doing it. Like the first six months of Master Talk, I probably had like 50 subscribers, maybe 100, maybe. But the reason I kept going is because I knew those people. I knew those 50. I knew those 100. They were my pe the people that I coached in university. That's how I learned how to speak. And those people told me to keep going because they kept saying, hey, this stuff doesn't exist anywhere else on the platform. You should keep making this. And then I went professional. But that's why it's so important for you to talk to the people that you serve. And I'll give you the best example. This applies to anyone who has a business or anyone who's trying to create content. Somebody comes up to me and goes, uh, Brandon, how do I grow my podcast? I go, how many people are listening to your podcast? They go, 50. Then I go, how many of those 50 have you actually met one-on-one? -on -one? They go, two. I go, two? There's 50 people that are watching. You only know two of those people? So that would be my immediate advice. Get to know the other 48. Sure, all of them won't be willing to have a conversation with you. But I pretty much guarantee if you have a podcast or a YouTube channel at the end of one of your skits, you just say, hey, email me. I'd love to get a coffee with you. I'd love to talk to you. That's how you can really start to figure out how to refine your content. That's probably the best piece of advice I have for people. So that way you create something that people want. You know, Master Talk didn't start the way it looks now with all pizzazzy and stuff. But, you know, it started with just a guy who had an idea. And then over time, my audience gave me all the ammunition I needed to fire.
That's so great. You're you're sitting at the kitchen table having a conversation with people. That's what this is. That's what our time together today is. That's what every show that you produce on Master Talk is. You're sitting there across the table from me explaining how to do your opening. You're sitting there explaining to me exactly what I need to do in order to structure my talk. You're having a conversation. You're entering a conversation that's taking place anyway. And you're adding your voice to it. And it just so happens that the things that you tell people to do actually work. So when you add your voice to it and people do what you say, they want to come back for more because what you're saying is, is uh, resonates and it works for people. That is probably the best marketing advice people can receive is that marketing is not about what I want. It's not about what the sender wants. It's about what the receiver wants. And you have to enter the conversation that's taking place in their in their office, at their kitchen table, in their mind. That's where you got to go with this. All right. So if somebody's listening right now and they need more of you, you want them to go to Master Talk. You want them to go to the YouTube channel, right? Because we got we to gotta get to 10,000 subscribers this year. I know you can do it. So everybody's going to go to Master Talk, and they're going to subscribe. They're going to turn the notification bell on. What else do you want people to do uh, to connect with you and to make sure that they're involved in your world? Because I'm, I'm sure a lot of people are impressed after hearing you. How can people get more involved with you? Absolutely. It's very kind of you. Dave, I would say the biggest thing is really the YouTube channel. You know, since I spend a lot of, I actually still haven't made money off the channel yet. So I put a lot of effort into it. So feel free to just watch a couple of videos and just send me an email. You know, my email contacts all on the YouTube channel. My Instagram handles there. You're more than happy to message me. I answer all of my DMs myself. If you have any questions, whether it's coaching, whether it's video ideas for me, you know, I'm, I'm big on having conversations with people. That's what I'm trying to do this year before I, I'm like you and I go back uh, to speaking and back on the road. So I want to try to take this next six to 12 months to really get to know everyone who's listening to me. So so don't be shy to reach out and, uh, and I hope you enjoy the videos. All right. So the name is pronounced Kumarasamy. Remember the name. Go to Master Talk on YouTube. It is the place where you can learn what you need to learn about speaking. It's for professionals, but it's also for beginners. Watch all the videos and then reach out to Brendan, get involved with him because I have no doubt it will make you a better speaker, a better communicator. Brendan, it's been an absolute honor having you today. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure was mine. All right, folks, that'll do it for another edition of the Inside BS Show. We're back here again tomorrow with another great inside look at business strategy or sharing insider business secrets. Until then, we will see you on the inside.